0: I certainly want to extend uh, Christian greetings in the name of Jesus to each of you this morning. My heart's been uh, just touched by uh, this time together with you brothers and sisters, uh, your families. Uh, We go to churches like this and share, it seems like, quite frequently. And sometimes the congregations think that um, we have the answers we don't have the answers. Uh, we're here to learn with you around God's Word. Uh, and I've been blessed. My heart's been blessed and uh, stimulated to seek after Jesus by my fellowship among you. I want to bless you for that. And We want to continue to just allow the Word of God to speak to us. Sometimes we become so focused on uh, our failures in life that we can't see what we have today the opportunities that God gives us today to build his kingdom. Do you know what you have? Do you know what you have? I, I, I looked at that group of, of young people up here in the front benches, and I, I asked myself, do we know what we have? We have a brother here that shared a confession tonight. today. Do you know what that means to the church? When we open our hearts and we confess our faults one to another and we pray one for another and we, we find healing in doing so. Thank you, Brother, for your humility in doing that. makes me want to confess my faults, my shortcomings, and seek God's healing in my heart. But do we know what we have? You can turn your Bibles to Ephesians. I think one of the things that's so helpful to me. Is to, to leave my failures in life. You know, I, I'm, at this point in my life, I look back over my life, and there's so many things I wish I could do different. And so uh, part of my sharing this morning, continuing on the theme of family, has to do with the fact that you know I, look, I reflect on life, and it's good to reflect on life, and it's good to learn from our failures. But we can't dwell on our failures. We've got to know what we have today and what God is calling us to today. And just one of the things that's so refreshing to me is to have a vision to have God's vision, to, to carry God's vision in my heart and always to set it before my eyes. I think it was just um, down here in Tennessee. Tennessee's not far from here, right? I mean, I, I learned yesterday that you can be in Kentucky in a mile or two or three and you can be in Tennessee maybe in a couple of miles. It's just it's just not far away. But the story goes, on, and this understands the true story, that there's a man down here in Tennessee who uh, said that he has a $1.2 million lawnmower a $1.2 million lawnmower. And the story got out that there's a man in Tennessee who has a $1.2 million lawnmower. Now that kind of like arouses your curiosity, doesn't it? I'd like to see that lawnmower. Well, a lot of other people thought it'd be nice to see that lawnmower too. In fact, word got to some news uh, broadcaster that there was a man in Tennessee who had a $1.2 million lawnmower. And they thought, well, this is, you know, let's do a fact check here. Let's find out what's going on. Let's go get the facts. Let's find the story. And let's put the story out there for people to enjoy if it's a reality. And so they uh, start fishing for information. They find out where this guy lives and what his address is. And a group of, of people with their TV cameras and everything got in a vehicle and they drove out there. And they they were expecting to go into this immaculate gated community. And they found themselves on this gravel road, and they traveled down this gravel road. They came to this address, and there was a house that was, had a lot of deferred maintenance on it. And there was an old man sitting on the porch smoking his cigarettes. And they pulled up to him and said, you wouldn't happen to be so-and-so-and-so. He said, yeah, that's me. Well, we heard that you have a $1.2 million lawnmower. He said, yeah, would you like to see it? And they said, sure. He said, come on. And he took them out around the back of the house. And there was this blue tarp held down by concrete blocks. And he pulled the concrete blocks away and he pulled the tarp away. And there was a lawnmower that wouldn't even run. The tires were flat. The deck had holes in it. The engine was no good. And they said, explain, you know, we're here to fact check this and get a story out of it if we can. He said, it's simple. Back when Walmart first started, My wife and I had $500 in a savings account, and we bought Walmart stock. And it sat there, and for years it wasn't doing anything. Finally, it got up to $700, and we're like, this isn't going places. This was not what we had in mind. Things aren't working out. And one day I was at Sears and Roebuck, and I seen this nice new mower, and I needed a mower. And I said, you know, if we got rid of that stock, I could have that mower. And so we cashed in the stock. We bought the more for $500. We had $200, and we spent it on just some luxuries that we wanted. And today, if I had left that $700 in that stock, I would have $1.2 million. And right there sits my $1.2 million. There's the story. And he's sitting on the porch. Why isn't he out there working, redeeming the time? Why are we as Christians so many times stuck in our past, grieving what could have been? Instead of saying, God, give me a vision for what can be by your grace, by your power. Not, not by power, not by might, but by the Spirit of God. Grandpas can be influencing their grandchildren in spite of the fact that they may have failed with their own children. They can pick up and carry on. And, you know, I can look back over my life and there's things I wish I'd have done different. I got to look at the opportunities I have today to be a a Christian grandpa. To be a blessing to my grandchildren. To help shape and mold the lives of my grandchildren. And continue to be there to support and to care for my children. So we're going to talk a little bit about God's vision. First of all, God's vision for his family. You know, God has a vision for his family. And... So many times, here, here's one of the failures that we have is that we have a vision for our family that is, it opposes the vision that God has for our family. And I know a man who said, he preached it loud. He said, if you don't have a vision for your family, the devil does. You better get a vision for your family. And you felt this pressure to sit down and articulate a vision for your family to get your act together and, and to make it happen so that people, when they look at your family, go, wow, there's the model family. There's only one person who has a model family, and that's our Father in heaven. And it isn't so important that you have a personal vision for your family as it is that you humbly say, God, help me to catch your vision from my family. It's not about you. We always want to make life about us. It's not about us. It's about Jesus. And we have to learn that, and we have to keep that always before our eyes when we think about raising a family that reflects the spirit and the heart of our Father, that captures his vision for us. And so just a few verses to start with. We're going to start, uh, we're going to end up mostly in Ephesians here, I think, in our time here today. But let's just look at a couple of verses here to get started. Let's look at Ephesians 1, verse 5. Having predestined us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. Whose pleasure are we seeking? Uh, we've been adopted into his family. He is our father and he's a good father. He's He's the best father. He is the absolute perfect role model for us as fathers and mothers. He encompasses everything. We look at his character. We look at the spirit of Jesus. We look at his disposition towards us, his children. And we can learn how that we can be fathers and mothers. We must never forget that we are special to him. We've been adopted. We've been chosen for his special purposes. Flip the the page to chapter 3 and verse 15. Chapter 3 and verse 15. This is Paul portraying the vision that uh, God has for His family. Let's start in verse 14. For this cause I bow my knee unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that He would grant to you, according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with might by His Spirit. Where? Where are we supposed to be strengthened? By His Spirit. It's not of man, but it's of God's Spirit. Where are we strengthened? In the inner man. And this is an important scripture to my heart because this speaks of the fact that Paul, he says, my disposition, I bow my knee. This is the disposition with which I live life on bended knee before God. And there's one thing that you will pass on to your children. There's many things you can pass on to your children. There's one thing that you will pass on to your children, and that's the disposition of your heart towards God it's the most important thing about you and it's the most important thing about me and we must give great care to the disposition of our heart toward God because this is the one thing that we're guaranteed that we will pass on to our children they will pick that up and we want it to be a disposition of humility of brokenness before God that father this is about you it's about your kingdom it's about your family it's not about me it's not about my goals my ambitions we give so much attention to being successful in material things. We have more material things in the body of Christ today than any time in history. But do we have a disposition of brokenness before God? Has this has vision for our family truly penetrated our passions? That's a question I keep asking my heart. And so we want to have a disposition, the disposition of brokenness and humility before God. Uh, let's go to chapter 4. Chapter 4 and verse 13. What is God's goal for our family? What is God's goal for your heart? It is that we might come into the unity of the faith, into the knowledge of the Son of God, unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the statue of the fullness of Christ. That we might grow up as a family into the very character and nature of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And in order for that to happen, our homes must be Christ centered. Homes. They must be cross-centered homes, and we talked about the. Um, I, I can't remember. I think it was Friday night. We talked about the Olive Press, uh, doing hard better. <laughs> but thinking about that, brother, doing hard better, facing the pressures of life, not running from them, but moving into the pressures of life uh, with humility, trusting the grace of God and the strength of God. Uh, not focusing on our own weakness and inability. And I, I, I was just thinking about in, in Revelation, I think it's in chapter 7, where again we have this glorious picture. Look it up and read it. Uh, we have this glorious picture of the family of God, uh, where uh, John being caught up in the Spirit, he sees this multitude, and it's a great multitude, it's a multitude that's, that's larger than any man can number. And they're standing by the river of life before the throne of God. I mean, we need to carry, allow our hearts to be carried into what's happening in heaven right now. And pray that his will, as it is being done in heaven, the glory, the worship of God, the standing in awe of God might be our experience here on earth in a greater measure than what it is. And he's standing there and he says, uh, who are these? And he says, uh, they are they uh, which have come through the great olive press of life, great tribulation on earth. And when they were in that olive press of life, what they were doing is they were washing their garments with the blood of the Lamb. What was their focus? Their redemption, their salvation, God's vision for their lives, being sanctified and prepared for that moment when they stood before their judge. That was their passion, was to be ready for that moment when they stood before the judge. And so their whole life was dictated not by uh, goals that they had, financial goals that they had, uh, goals that they had to have the respect of the community or the people in the church. Their whole life was dictated by this one thing. I want to live in a way that pleases my Father in heaven. That proves that his son did not die in vain for my poor lost soul. They constantly sought to be cleansed. They confessed their faults one to another freely. They were transparent one with another. They weren't trying to hide behind a facade of having their act all together, they were humble about their brokenness. And in in their brokenness, they came to Jesus. Being kept alive physically was not their highest priority in life. It was being connected to the vine. And they nurtured that connection with prayer. They were constantly washed with the blood of of the Lamb. And they stood there a part of that great family. And it goes on to say that they are forever They're in a place where there is no more olive press. It's all rest and it's all glory, singing together before the throne of God. And we long for that in our hearts. Today is the day that we're in the olive press. Today is the rehearsal. Today is the testing time of our faith. And will our faith be anchored in the blood of Christ? Or are we going to live by the wisdom of men? Are we going to live by our emotions? And I want to just um, call our hearts to Ephesians chapter 6 and, and make a few. I just want, by God's grace, to share a few things. Because I know what it is to be a young father, and I know what it is to have children, and, and to wonder, how do I do this? Uh, what are some practical instruction? And, and the Word of God is full of it. I turned to many books as a young father, and I read a lot of books to try to understand how, to, how do I raise my family? And one of the things that I found was that the Word of God uh, has such clear answers for us. If we just humble our hearts and ask the Spirit of God, The Word Jesus says that His Spirit is able to teach us. Um, He's able to give us about 40% of what we need uh, for life and godliness, and the rest of it we're going to have to go dig out somewhere else. Is that what it says? It's not what it says. You sure? Okay. Well, that's the way I approach life. And then I found out that His Spirit can give us everything that we need for life and godliness. He can teach us. He can bring it to us. In the most surprising ways, and sometimes by the most surprising people, sometimes it's your through your children. <laughs> sometimes your children become your instructors. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Remember the day that it was, uh, I grew up in a home where there was a lot of contention, a lot of struggles, financial struggles. And um, grew up in a home where we didn't go to church, but every once in a while. And every Sunday morning, we'd get up and try to decide, are we going to go to church today or aren't we going to go to church today? It's a very difficult way to raise a family. Very difficult. And um, a lot of tension. My mother ended up in a mental institute for a while, and God restored her. Uh, but that was a difficult time for our family as we were put out to different families to be uh, raised over those those uh, months. Um, but I, I purposed in my heart that in our home there would be a spirit of peace. Um, I came to the church, at, started attending our church the first time at 16. And I observed the families. You don't know who's watching you. I was a young man, very shy, very nervous, sat at the back of the church. And I never prayed in public a day in my life. And it was a very difficult thing for me the first time they called on me to pray for the fellowship meal. I nearly fainted, literally. um, Because we just didn't fellowship in that way. And I purposed it in our home. We would have a godly home where there would be peace. That was my goal. And then I remember one day when our oldest son was just about three or four years old, I came into the house and I was upset about something. And I know that none of you brothers have ever been like this, but I came and I was irritated about something. And I I spoke to my wife in words that were not real kind because I felt like she was at fault for the way things were not panning out. And she said something that defended herself. And then I came back with some stronger Yeah, no, this is the way it is. You know, if you would have done this, this, and this, we wouldn't be where we're at. And then she said something, and then I came across with even more strength in my words. And I glanced over, and i seen our little son standing there with this troubled look on his face. It was like a look of anguish. And my heart went back to the way it was in my home, as my mom and dad struggled through their financial difficulties. My son became my instructor, his countenance became my instructor. and it broke my heart. And I went over to my wife and I put my arms around her and said, "Honey, I'm not sure if you're right or if I'm right, and it doesn't even matter." But I want to take responsibility for my attitude, and I'm sorry. Can you forgive me? And I glanced over my wife's shoulder into my oldest son's little face, and it went from stress to a glow. My son became my teacher. Just want to look at a couple of things that God teaches us in His Word, and I just want to invite you: if at any time in your in your child training and you're raising a godly family and your vision for a godly family, uh, you feel confused and frustrated, don't be alone. Uh, talk to your ministry, uh, talk to those who have walked the road before. Search, search the Word of God together, and. Uh, it, God is for you, and he wants to help you. This is, a, this is a, the beautiful thing about our Father in Heaven. Is he says, I will never leave you, and I will never forsake you. That is a promise that you can hang your hat on. It's true. He's given you a, a body of believers, and he wants you to walk together in humility and simply be humble about the struggles you face in life and work through them together as a community. Never allow yourself to try to do this alone. The body of Christ, the community that God has given to us, is where we find the strength to fulfill his will. Uh, Just read a few verses here in Ephesians chapter 6. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and your mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with thee, and that thou mayest live long on the earth. And ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. And so I just want to uh, just break that verse down there, verse 4 a bit. Uh, who is it that the primary responsibility lies upon in child raising, in child training? What is, is it the mother or the father in your home? In the scriptures, what is it? The mother of the father. And ye... Fathers. Fathers. Now, actually, if you analyze that in the Greek, it has a connotation of parents with an emphasis on the leaders of the home. We talked last night about loving headship. Ye fathers, take responsibility. We talked last night about the the need, um, the tendency that we have to be disconnected, to be out to lunch rather than taking responsibilities. We all have that tendency, every one of us. And the call here is for us fathers to take a hold of things, to be present. You know, I I like to observe uh, what's happening in the world around me. And sometimes I go to weddings and I see um, a father who's sitting there at the table at the reception. There's candles burning and he's just kind of like looking around and uh, his son is burning napkins in the candle. Got smoke rolling up. You think he might burn the place down? He don't even notice. And his son's right beside him. He's out to lunch. But his buddies all notice. And so pretty soon one of them is taking plastic silverware and putting up a little cloud of smoke off of a uh, plastic silverware. And dads are out to lunch. We're here to fellowship, we're here to live in our own little world and catch up with our friends. We don't see what's going on in the world around us. Dads, be engaged. Know what's happening around you. Be aware of what's happening in your in your fellow after your fellowship meals, after your church services. What are your children doing? Be aware of what's going on. And moms too. You you sisters are so important in raising a godly family. We can't do it without you. We can't. God has an has designed it. Moms and dads work together to parent our families and that our children know that they have a watchful eye. Someone watching over them. A physical eye that is watching over them. We're training them to remember, to learn that there is always the eyes of God beholding everything that we do. Right now, particularly in their very young years, what you are teaching your children is that just as God as I, just as I am watching you as your parents, so we have a heavenly father who is always looking down from heaven. He goes on to say, okay, your fathers, take your responsibility. Take it seriously. Take it seriously. And don't provoke your children to anger. Walk humbly before God. One of the ways that I see that we provoke our children to anger is when we ourselves express frustration with them. Why is it that we tend to do that? We give them a command and they don't obey our command and we end up responding in frustration to them. The tone of our voice reveals the disposition of our hearts. And one of the things that I grieve about is when I, so many times I look back and I just left my my heart. Um, in my heart, there was like, I was goal-oriented person. Get it done. Make it happen. Move on. Redeem the time. I was so focused on accomplishing things uh, that I was not able to see that behind all of that was this ego. I was driven by my own personal ego, and that um, drivenness allowed me to respond many times in frustration to my children. And I've taken ownership of that and going back to my children and say. Can you forgive me for the way that I pushed you in life in some areas? We had some children that um, struggled with reading. They were dyslexic. And I pushed them because I wanted them, my motivation was right. I wanted them to be able to read the Word of God fluently. My motivation was right for the most part. But in behind all of that, we have this ego thing that pushes us. You know? So We're sitting in church in Bible study, and my son is struggling to read the Scriptures correctly when it's his turn to read in a public setting. Am I embarrassed by that? And if I am, why am I? It has something to do with my own pride, my own ego. His value is not based upon whether he can read affluently in public. And I need to recognize deep within my heart I need to learn to be okay with that. And that was one of the things that I struggled with as a parent. And two of my sons felt that pressure from me. And I grieve about that. And I've received their forgiveness, but I still grieve about that. (laughs) Because you can't go back and undo that. But you've got to move forward. Don't. Don't push your children to anger. Help them to find their value in Christ. Keep the focus on the incredible love of God, the incredible sacrifice that Christ made on the cross for our behalf, and help them to find their value in the realities concerning our redemption. And it goes on, I just want to to share a couple um, principles that that, that have helped me. Um, We need to be together in this as a brotherhood. I remember uh, some of the things that I learned I learned early in life. We were living in Arkansas. I think I was four years old. We lived in Hardy, Arkansas. And th- my dad was standing there talking to a couple of brethren. And they had come to, to deliver a bill to him for something. And he was looking at this bill. And I was four years old. I walked up to my dad and I wanted to see what this paper was. I just reached up and pulled it out of his hand. and was standing there looking at it. And one of the brothers said, You're going to let him get away with that? I mean, that is like disrespectful. He took it out of your hand without asking for it. And my dad didn't make much of it, but my little heart did. I'm like, I did something wrong. I was disrespectful. Oh, I should be saying, Daddy, can I please see that? And wait for him to hand it to me. And so... We need to have courage when we see that things are not, uh, maybe some of us are blinded to what needs to be done. How do we train our children? You know, not saying something is not the kindest thing you can do. Saying something in a spirit of love is the kindest thing that you can do. And when it comes to admonishing one another, we're here to help each other. And we have a, a collective vision. That what we want to do with these young people that we had sitting over here on these benches a little while ago, what we want to do is to help them to grow up and be like Jesus. That is our collective vision. Then there's a lot of give and take as we help each other understand what it actually looks like to raise a godly seed. We want to take the long view to realize what this church can become and what this church can do. How we can reach out into other communities with the testimony of Jesus Christ through what we have right here and invest deeply in what we have. That's God's vision for us. And so one of the first things that we see here in this passage of Scripture is that we are to, um, we have three things here we're going to talk about just briefly. The first one is what? We are to bring up, we are to nurture, and we are to admonish. Okay? So you see those those three concepts. Bring up, nurture, and admonish. Let's say that together. Bring up, nurture, and admonish. You know, we see that uh, the word bring up there in the Greek, if you took it back and looked at it in the Hebrew, it would be train. (laughs) Not the kind of train that runs on tracks, children. Train has this concept. To bring them into a narrow place. Did someone say something one time really important about a narrow place? Jesus did. He said the road that leads to life is what? It's narrow. It's restricted. It feels tight sometimes. And children sometimes think that it's really tight. My dad, when he was a boy, they had a culvert going under the driveway And for some reason, he got the idea that it'd be fun to crawl through that culvert. And so he put his hands up over his head and he started wiggling himself through with his toes. The problem is it got tighter where the milk truck had been crossing. And when he got into that really narrow part of that narrow space, he couldn't go forward and he couldn't go backward and nobody knew where he was at. And he laid in there and he cried and he tried everything he could and He couldn't go forward, and he couldn't go backward, and he almost lost his mind, and then he thought about the fact that the milk truck is coming sometime soon today, and it might get tighter in here than it is now, and he gave it one last desperate effort, and he backed himself out of there, and my dad and I worked together in construction for quite a few years, and I could never get my dad to go in any kind of a place that was anything narrow. He just... We go back emotionally back to that moment, you know some of us are like that. we want freedom, <laughs> we don 't like narrow. This is not a place of suffering and persecution per se It's a place of discipline it 's a place where we come together the 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 concept here is corral, okay, so we have beef cattle, and we try to. Um, work our cattle regularly to give them updated vaccines so they don't uh, come down with uh, tetanus or blackleg or other diseases out there. And uh, I learn a lot from my cattle and learn how to maybe uh, work with people, learn how God works with me. Uh, We have a group of cattle, and I remember we first got cattle seven, eight years ago. One day we were trying to get them in the corral to care for them to do good things for them. They had uh, no idea what we were trying to do, and that's the way children are. They have no idea what we're trying to do for them. They don't understand this. And we went out there with our four-wheelers, and we got most of the cattle in except for this one heifer. Uh, She was a bred heifer, going to have a calf soon. I said, you know, here's what I heard, was that if you wear your animal down to the point where they'll just be happy to stay ahead of you, you can kind of guide them where you want to go. And so I ran her around and around and around with a four-wheeler for about 15 minutes. And then she went in off this hillside into this huge grove of Russian olive, which is so dense you can hardly walk through it. She just plowed a path right through it and stood in the middle of it. I jumped off my four-wheeler. I thought, she went in there. I can go in there. I went right in the path she went on. Well she turned around seen me and came flying straight at me, charged dead for me, scared me so bad. I jumped up in the air. She went right between my legs. I rode up over that hill on her neck and shoulders, cleared all that brush, and I rolled off of her neck. I never, I never, I didn't fall down. I just stood, just rolled off, landed on my feet. I'm standing there like this in total shock. It happened so fast, I couldn't believe it. About that time, my oldest son came up over the hill in Fort Weller. He said, Dad, where is she? I said, I don't care. I don't know, and I don't care. We've got to change something here. This is not working. This is not working. And what I learned through that experience was, that if you stay calm with your cattle, and you spend time with your cattle, and you have a spirit that is calm, you can work your cattle without them getting excited, without them fearing the corral. And what I learned was if every time I go out to them, I take a little feed along, I talk to them, stand there among them, they know me. They know my voice. Uh, we don't use horses anymore. We don't use four-wheelers anymore. I call my cows to the corral. And my son, Chris, doesn't enjoy working cattle like I do. He likes the cattle, he just don't like working them. It takes too long. But there was a time when he would come, and, and I'd say, you know, when you come here, son, there's a tension in your heart. And these cattle know that. They can sense that. And they start stiffening up and not behaving like they do when you're not here. And what I'm asking you to do is just to be aware of that. If you can come in here and be calm, be slow with your emotions, gracious, things will go so much faster. We'll get done so much quicker. The cattle will be so much happier. Everything's going to go great. If we can learn that in our family, to have a spirit that is controlled by the spirit of God, a calmness. One of the things that the gospel does, remember the story of Jesus when he's out on the the sea and the waves are roaring? He says, peace be still. If you're going to raise a godly family, one of the first principles is there needs to be peace in your heart. There needs to be a calm that comes through knowing Jesus and maintaining that relationship with Jesus. That's Christianity 101. He calms the storm. The emotions, everything comes to a calm in your heart. Now we're ready to start teaching our children. So... The training has to happen. When you think about the corral, the concept of training, this is in like uh, various levels of maturity. Where do we do this? Where do we teach this discipline, this coming into the corral, into that narrowing? We have like two years to teach a brokenness of the will, a surrender to the will of another. We have like two years. To teach it, If you don't get that taught to your children in the first two years, it's going to be really, really difficult. And I remember as a young deacon sitting in a, in a group of men who were talking about a particular rebel rouser in the church. You know what a rebel rouser is? That term comes from Exodus. It's someone who's always stirring things up. They're half-hearted in their commitment to Christ. These were the, the Egyptians who had converted to Judaism and were coming out with, or they, they were half and half Uh, maybe had a a Jewish father and an Egyptian mother, but they were not fully committed to the ways of God. They came out of Egypt with the Israelites, and they were on the fringes of the camp, and they were always stirring things up in the church. That's where the word comes from, rebel, rouser. And we had this, this person that was a rebel rouser in the church, and we were talking about how can we graciously minister to them. And one old brother in the ministry, he raised his hand. He said, you know, I can tell you what the problem is. I remember when that person was a child in their high chair and they never learned to sit in the high chair. Could there be a connection? Could there be a connection between having our will broken at a young age in the high chair and how we do relationships in the body of Christ when we grow up? Could there be a connection? Yeah, there is a connection. There is a connection. Very important. Very important that we work to bring, we do not want to crush the spirit, but we work to bring our children into that narrow place. And I remember one son, Micah, as a young baby, he was uh, very difficult to bring to that where he'd be willing to sit still on the sofa during family worship. And I remember one time he just put up a, a temper tantrum And I took him back into our bedroom and I sat in a rocking chair and I held him close and he fought me and I held him close and I prayed and I sang. I talked to him in smoothing tones. I prayed. I sang. I was there for well over two hours and he just fought and screamed and fought and suddenly he just started to cry softly and softer and softer and then he relaxed. That was a turning point. And the breaking of his will. He almost won that battle. He almost won that battle. But it was important for him to experience that. That breaking of his will. And today he's a very disciplined young man. Raising a family of his own. Secondly. And time is, is flying along here so quickly. Train. Train up a child in the way he should go. And when he is old. He will not depart from it. And so uh, we, we focus on the, those early years of building a bond with our children. They need to know that it's, it's, it's not a painful thing to come into the corral, to be close to mom and dad. We, we develop that, that uh, close emotional connectedness to them. By just, and I see that here. You, you people love your children. Uh, they need to, to have time to be coddled on your lap. Uh, They need to just be held close and to be told over and over what a precious gift they are to you from God. They need to hear that. Um, I think a lot of research has proven that children who are rejected in the womb are born with a feeling of rejection. And parents who pray for their children, thank God for their children, when they're yet in the womb, have a greater ability to connect emotionally to mom and dad and to receive the instruction, the uh, bringing, the being brought into a brokenness of the will. The heart here is that we might um, help develop the temperament of our, our children. We, we move on a little bit to um, ages 2 through 11. At this point, we're trying to Build character in our children. You know, if God has a goal for our children, it is what? What do we read? His goal for us and for our children is that we might have character, His character, built into our hearts, and that it might be real. It's a part of us. It's woven into the very fabric of our soul. It's not just something we can articulate and talk about, but it's actually who we are. Um, How do we do that? I think it's um, in the years of uh, 3 through 11, there's a lot of attention needs to be given to teaching our children to submit with joyfulness to the will of another. Uh, is that what God's calling us to? Yeah. To submit to his will. Obedience, joyful obedience. I remember uh, as, a, as a contractor, I went to see a man uh, in Maryland. We were living in Pennsylvania at the time to check out a prospective job. And I pulled into this place and said, wow, this is a really nice place. Nice buildings, nice grounds. I pulled in there, and one of the things that caught my eye was there was a beautiful German shepherd sitting there by the office door, just sitting there perfectly watching me, watched every move I made. I like German shepherds. I had a German shepherd myself at that time. And I uh, approached him, and you know how to approach a dog, don't you? You put your hand out like this, and you walk up to him. If you put your hand like this, they take it as a threat. But if you put your hand like that, it's a sign of submission. And they're less likely to be aggressive towards you. And so I walked up to him. And about that time, the owner showed up, said a few words to the dog. And the dog came over to me. And I said, nice dog there. Yeah. He said, nice dog. So we enjoy him. I said, do you have him trained? He said, yeah. And he goes, pow. And the dog just, all four legs straight out, head down on the macadam, just like someone shot him. And we stood there and we talked for five minutes. And that dog laid there like it was dead. And while we talked, suddenly the dog's head started coming up. He says, you're dead. Put his head back down just like so. I said, you do have that dog trained, don't you? He said, yeah. He said, uh, I forget the dog's name. He said, I'll take a Pepsi. And that dog runs to the house, takes his teeth, opens the door, goes through several other doors, goes to the refrigerator, gets a Pepsi, And brings it out. And he opens it and it doesn't fizz. I said, that is amazing. He said, do you want a Mountain Dew? (laughs) I said, that is amazing. That is amazing. If we could, you know, here's the thing that is so grievous in our day. Is that people invest more deeply in their pets than they do their children. May it not be so in the house of God. A dog that's going to live for what, 10, 12 years at best, has no eternal value, can be a nice friend, but no eternal value? Seriously, in the house of God, are we putting that kind of energy into training our children to joyfully obey us in preparation for the time when they hear the voice of God and they want to joyfully obey God and find deep joy in simply obeying God's commands? I have young girls come up to me sometimes that grew up in churches like this and say, you know, I grew up in an Anabaptist church. I have no conviction for a head covering. Well, you don't need a conviction for head covering. What? No, you don't. You don't have to have a conviction for head covering. You don't. What you need, though, is a very deep conviction to joyfully obey God's word. And you just do God's word, okay? So you start obeying God's word. And at some point, you will understand. Maybe you don't even need to. You don't have to have this mystery of the gospel figured out. But you do have to learn joyful obedience. In these years between 3 and 11, it is our burden. The burden is upon fathers particularly and also mothers that we teach our children this amazing gift that God has given us to bow our wills to his will and to do it with joy. Mm Mhm. Yeah, it's the most important thing. You don't got to get all this stuff figured out in the Bible and understand why and how and for what reason. When your children come to you at this age and say, but why? You say, because I'm your dad. I'm your mom. God put me as an authority in your life. That's why. Put a smile on your face. Get it done. This is what we're going to do. Why? Because we're teaching our children this very important principle. It's important to obey when you don't understand. It's important to obey with joy. We don't need the answers. We just need to know that we are His servants. He's our master. So many times, we get it wrong. We get it wrong. Jesus said, "Uh, take my yoke upon you. Why? Because my yoke is light. My burden is light. My yoke is easy. It's different. The Bible refers to the yoke of Satan as a yoke of iron. Oh, imagine that. And so um, what we want to teach our children is this, is that everybody has a yoke. Now, what we understand, we we have this concept because we bought into Protestantism a lot. We have this concept that uh, the yoke that Jesus is offering us is a double yoke where we yoke up with him. And that's wrong. That's wrong. That's not right. We're not getting yoked up with Jesus. Mm-mm. Here's the deal we have two masters that both have a plow, and they're both offering you a yoke. In other words, you're going to submit yourself to one or the other. That's just the way it is. Do you want an iron yoke, or do you want a yoke that is custom fit for you? That your master has broken in for you? Who do you want to be your master? You want to plow for the devil or you want to plow for the Lord Jesus Christ? That's what he's saying. And it's your choice. And in our training, our children, we're helping them to understand that. You will serve a master. Right now, I am your master. And I'm preparing you for the time when you come to the age of accountability. And you will choose your master for the rest of your life. You will choose your yoke. And Jesus is saying, choose my yoke. Come and yoke yourself to me. Let me be your master. You pull my plow, the gospel plow, and you will find that compared to having Satan as your master, that my burden is light, my plow pulls easy, and my yoke is custom fit for you because I broke it in for you. That's what we're doing with our children. We're teaching them the joy of serving the gentle Jesus. And there's only one other option. That's, and we are running out of time fast, brothers and sisters. Let me just say very quickly, very quickly, that uh, as our children move into the um, ages 12 to adulthood, and you might say, well, what's adulthood? Uh, We'll talk about that maybe this this evening. We'll have a few words with our young people. Uh, how many young people do we have here today? See you raising your hands. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> eternity is endless, right? And you're own, you're only in your fifties, brother. You're only in your fifties. Compare that to eternity. You're very, very young. So we want to just share some thoughts uh, this evening uh, with young people, and uh, where do we? Where do we actually cross into adulthood where we are on our own and we make our own decisions independent of our parents and, and other people? We'll maybe talk about that this evening if the Lord gives grace to do that, okay? So we're all young people and we all want to be here tonight. And when we talk to young people, we want everyone to sit up front, all right? So we'll see how that goes. <laughs> we have a very small church in West Virginia and we sit close. We sit really close and I like that. Um, it's, we are his body. We want to focus on that reality. Um, so we think about the fact that when we get a little older, we, we turn. What happened in the life of Jesus whenever he turned 12? Where do we see Jesus? Where, where was Jesus? In the temple. And what was he doing? He was asking questions, and he was answering questions. <laughs> And you know, the interesting thing is this, it's just the dynamics of the world in which we live. You know, it's my generation, was the first generation that starts asking their children what they want for dinner or for supper. Ah, it's your birthday, what do you want for your birthday? In the generation previous, uh, mom and dad made that decision. And it might be potatoes and turnips because that's all we got. It's part of our affluent society. Will we start throwing options out to our children? Oh, you don't like peas? Uh, well, this you don't have to eat peas. When I was a boy, you ate what was set before you, and you did not complain. It was part of our training. A lot of that has changed in our families, and I think there's some ramifications of that that uh, spread out across our lives in other areas of the, of the just the whole thing of being content and satisfied with the mean things, the, the necessary things of life. We've become a very affluent. I uh, was in Honduras a number of years ago, and I came back home. I just grieved. I told my wife, I said, our affluence is not doing us any favors in learning to be disciples of Jesus Christ. It's not doing us any favors in raising uh, children that know how to uh, just enjoy the necessary things of life, the basics and I think we need to think about that and pray about that as God's people. But the point I want to make is that our children, when they get to the age of 12, it's been long recognized in Jewish culture and Christian culture, that when they become at the age of 12, we are preparing them for that time when they will begin to hear the voice of God on their own. And we want to focus on training them to hear the voice of God and humbly submit to and obey that voice. That is, that is you know, the, the training in the early years has uh, an end. There's, there's, there's it's like, we, our responsibility comes to an end as parents in some measure, uh, in a large measure. And it's a very short, um, Paul says the time is short. It means that just like we want to draw our children into this narrowness, so time is drawn into a narrowness. And we don't have a lot of time to get this done. And so we have to be very intentional about it. We cannot. Uh, be out to lunch. Uh, And we want to prepare our children for that time when influences will be coming in from the brothers in the church, the pressures from the world. As they grow up into young adults, they're going to experience temptations. Uh, I was put out to work to try to make money for the family when I was 15 years old, and I was put into a very ungodly setting. Worked at a farm where I had men who were inviting me to engage in immoral acts. Um, And... By God's grace, because of the teaching that I had at home, I was able to say, no, I will not go out with that date that you're encouraging me to go out with and you're arranging for me. I will not do that. I'm going to keep myself from marriage. And I have never for a second regretted. I've watched where the lives of those people have gone. And I've never for a second regretted that I was taught. I'm so grateful that my parents taught me what they did when I was a young boy. At that age, I was able to discern between right and wrong and stand strong for God. Not saying I was a perfect young man. I was not. I I had my temptations. But uh, when it comes to to moral purity, that God was able to give me strength to be kept. I want to leave you with this. As we try to wrap this up quickly, Um, I want to encourage you as uh, parents to take very seriously the call to family worship. I would like to ask for a show of hands for everyone who had, faith, had family worship faithfully this past week uh, with your family. I'm not going to do that because I don't want to embarrass any of you. But one of the things that we're losing is daily family worship. The discipline, the structure of daily family worship in our families. The family altar... That what we worship, where we worship is very, very important in our homes. If we go back into Genesis, I think it's in 35, where God comes to Jacob. And he says to Jacob, he says, I want you to go down to Bethel. That's where God had met him in that vision. I want you to go there and I want you to build an altar to me. And It's amazing if you see what happened in that passage of Scripture. Go there and read it. We don't have time here this morning. But Jacob he says to his family, he says, okay, we're going to Bethel. Uh, let's get ready for this experience. And what happens? You know how it is that the world just kind of like encroaches on you and your family? You know, you, you wake up one morning, you look at your daughter's dress, you say, I wonder what motivated her to get that material for a dress? Or you see how your son maybe makes a decision like, oh, where would I fail that he's making those decisions? The world just wants to encroach in upon the church and upon our families. And one of the first things it wants to do is rob us of our worship before God. Because there is something that sanctifies us, something sanctifying happens in our choice of who we worship and what we worship. It will either corrupt you or sanctify you. And you're going to give your affections to something. Jacob had been living a life of pursuing his own ego. And what had happened was the world encroached upon his family. He was not maybe completely aware of it, but he says, we've got to do something. One is we've got to change our clothing. We've got to get rid of the world's clothing. We've got to look like God's people. We're going back to my father's house. we, we got to look like a stranger and pilgrim. So they changed their clothing. They took off all their what? You know the passage. What else did they get rid of? All the jewelry. And they gave it to him, and he buries it all under the tree. And now they're dedicated to God. And that's so important that we, our families know. Joshua says, you can make your decision what you're going to worship, but as for me and my house, we will serve. And the word there is actually worship. We will worship the Lord. And it's so important for you fathers to say in your hearts, to your families, we are dedicated to worshiping the Lord our God and there will be no other gods. Our affections are going to be for him. And for him alone, and I'm so convicted by the way that we think we can divide our affections. Why is it that we don't have power in our churches today more than we do? I think many times it's because we try to serve. We try to give a divvy out a little bit of affection to this and a little bit of affection to that. And I'm as guilty of it as anyone. There was a time in my early Christian life where one of my greatest passions was to kill a big trophy buck. How much of your affection do you want to give to things like that? Seriously. Honestly. Nothing wrong with going out and harvesting a deer or shooting a mature deer if it comes along. How much of your affection do you want, how much of your children's affection do you want to see going to the world, a perishing world, a Babylonian world that is slated for destruction? How much of their affection do you want to go there? Your way to direct that is through the family altar. And what we see happening in that passage here in Genesis is that Jacob dedicates his family to God. He cleanses his family. They go on towards Bethel and, get this, nobody, none of the enemies pursued them. You got that? The enemies did not pursue them because the fear of the Lord was upon the enemies. On Friday night, we talked about the fact that Joshua, in a state of discouragement, Satan was right at his right hand. And once he got rid of his rags, and put on the righteousness of Christ, the Spirit of Jesus, the angel of the Lord stood at his right hand. And as fathers, we want the Spirit of the Lord, the angel of the Lord, to be standing at our right hand, defending us as we go through life and as we call our children to a life of dedication to worshiping God. There is nothing that will build conviction in the hearts of your children like reading the Word of God to them. Make sure your children each have their own Bible, and go through the Bible with them. The Bible covers everything. The wonderful, the horrible. And it's all inspired by God. It's for their learning. As they read of the mistakes of others. As you make practical application. Keep your, keep your devotional time short. Uh, keep it focused. It doesn't have to be long. Our, we had family worship um, with our children. We tried to have it every night. And probably on the average, it was 15, to 20 minutes. We tried to sing a few songs. We were desperately challenged when it comes to singing, my wife and I. But what we did was we brought some of the church people in, and we would record. Back then, we had cassette tapes. Does anyone here remember cassette tapes? I'm so old, I remember eight tracks. I never had one, but I remember people having eight tracks. (laughs) But we had cassette tapes, and we would gather in some brothers and sisters around our kitchen, and they would sing into this little tape player. Songs that we wanted to learn as a family. And then we would play those songs at our family worship and sing with it until we knew them by heart. And it was we had to overcome the, the, the deficiency that we had in being able to learn songs and lead songs in our family. That's the way we did it. Be intentional and be, take drastic measures if you have to to make the Bible reading. And, and don't use, please, please, don't, don't use electronic devices in your worship. There is something incredibly therapeutic about each of your children being there with a Bible, a printed copy of the Bible, learning to page through the Bible. There's something incredibly therapeutic. And I know whole congregations that come together, Anabaptist congregations, and they all have their tablet, and they all have their smartphone. They don't even bring a Bible to church anymore. Don't go there, okay? There's something just, we don't want to go there. You want to maintain that ability to leaf through the Word of God. We don't know when we might lose all those electronic gadgets. I read my Bible on the, on the gadget sometimes. Sometimes I'm driving down the road listening to it being read on a gadget. But don't let it become something that controls your life or takes over your family worship. This is a sacred time together around God's Word. And each of your children should have a printed copy of the Bible in their hands as you experience this together. Reading God's Word, singing God's Word, and praying together. Praying is so important. It's the tears of many a mother that has saved their wayward son, and brought them back to the Lord. Was it uh, Spurgeon that said that it was the tears of his mother falling down his shirt collar when he sat on her lap? That later in life, when the Spirit of the Lord came upon him, when he was at age of accountability as a young man, he, he kept feeling those tears dropping down his back, and he, this this weight came upon him that those tears will testify against me in the day of judgment, if I don't live for Jesus. And so he dedicated his heart to Jesus. And he found strength to, be, to minister the word of God for many years. The tears of our mothers and the tears of our fathers as they pray. I just recently started reading some of the writings of uh, John G. Payton. How many of you have heard of John G. Payton? His father, I think they lived in the Netherlands. Um, Holland area. But his father prayed with such earnestness. His father would pray every day, three times every day. He would take time to go to his room and to pray for his family. And he said his father prayed with such earnestness for the lost that the lost might come to know the redeeming love of Jesus. And he would weep while he prayed. And it put such a burden on young John's heart that as he grew up and became a young man, he dedicated his heart to the Lord. And he asked God to use him to take the gospel to the heathen. And one of the things that we that it's only in recent times that we've become under such incredible pressure from our world that we're letting these things slip from our homes. And my appeal to you, brothers and sisters, is to rebuild the altar of God. If it's not a part of your family experience, rebuild it with conviction that it needs to be. You know, the Puritans, when they did their daily or their yearly visits among the families, they said this they said, How's your how's your family worship going? Are you committed to it? Is it happening? And they took it so seriously, and I'm not supporting everything about the Puritans, but the discipline is something we need. It was so important to them that if the family could not give the affirmative that, yes, it's happening, they would say, okay, when we visit next year, uh, and if you have not made it a part of your daily life, uh, then uh, we're going to have to put you under quiet censure, which just means you can't take communion until you restore this to your family. That's how seriously they took it. We need to take it very seriously in our lives. We need to recognize that it is building a foundation of faith in the hearts of our children that will give them direction for the rest of their lives. The songs we sing, the hymns of the church that we sing, the scriptures that we share. When my older children got older, we started getting up at 5 o'clock every morning, and we would spend half an hour in serious Bible study around the kitchen table. And there was a time that I just felt like I'm almost abusing my children, requiring this of them, and I quit for a short time. And my daughter, our oldest daughter, Teresa, she came to me one day in tears. And she said, Daddy, why don't we get up in the morning with you at 5 o'clock to study the Bible? She said, we just really missed that. And I repented. And we started getting up in the morning again, and I followed that down through with my younger children. And just spending time treasuring the Word of God, it builds a foundation in our children's lives for the pressures that they meet, the temptations they meet. And I know the time is here to close. Can you bear with me just a little bit yet? And What I want to do, and, and you'll find this in uh, John Payton's book. I've never shared this in a public way, partly because I'm afraid I can't without crying. <laughs> um, but this is, you'll, you'll, if you get the book, um, it's called Missionary Patriarch. It's written by John Payton himself. He wrote his own life story. And in a lot of ways, his, his life took some really what looks like tragic turns. Um, so he grew up, I think it was in, in the Netherlands, uh, Holland area. He went to school, He went to, to college to learn the Bible because he wanted to be a missionary. He wanted to go to the heathen. He ended up going to the South Sea Islands, which is south of Scotland. And the people there were just steeped in witchcraft and they were cannibals. Uh, for those of you who don't know what a cannibal is, it's, it's someone who isn't afraid to eat other people. And he wanted to go there and take the gospel there. And there was already one missionary working there. but He married a young lady named Mary, and, and they went there. Um, they built a small house, and they started reaching out to the natives. And within a year, uh, his wife—actually, it was within three or four months— his wife Mary gave birth to a little boy. They named him Peter. And uh, within 19 days, she caught the tropical fever and died. Mary did. And so he buried his wife and was trying to care for his little boy. He had to sleep on the grave of his wife to keep the natives from digging her up. Um, And 36 days of age, little Peter passed away. And he buried little Peter next to his wife. And we talk about being in the olive press wanting to do God's will, having a vision for the gospel going out and facing such incredible hardship. And so in his book, he writes about what sustained him through those difficult times, what sustained him through his years in college. And um, I just want to read this to you, okay, in closing, if you don't mind. It's called The Parting. If you you look it up in the book there of, of the missionary patriarch, it's called The Parting. Uh, they're on the way leaving their home and he's going to the college to study the Bible and he's walking with his father. They've left the house and they're walking down the road. Uh, My dear father walked with me the first six miles of the way. His counsel and tears and heavenly conversation on that parting journey are fresh in my heart as if it had been yesterday. And tears are on my cheeks as freely now as then. Whenever memory steals me away to the scene, his tears fell fast as our eyes met each other in looks for which all speech was vain. He clasped my hand firmly for a minute in silence and then solemnly said, God bless you, my son. Your father's God prosper you and keep you from all evil. Unable to say more, his lips kept moving in silent prayer. In tears, we embraced and we parted. I ran off as fast as I could. And went about to turn the corner in the road where he would lose sight of me. I looked back and I saw him standing there, head uncovered, where I had left him gazing after me. Waving my hat adieu, I was around the corner and out of sight in an instant, but my heart was too full and too sore to carry me further, so I darted into the side of the road and wept there for a time. Rising up cautiously, I climbed up on the dike to see if he yet stood where I had left him. And just at that moment, I caught sight of him climbing the dike to see if he could catch a glimpse of me. I watched him as he gazed eagerly for me. And from where I stood, he could not see me. He continued to look. And then eventually, he climbed down off the dike and began his walk towards home with his hat still in his hands. And I knew that his lips were moving in prayer for his son. I continued to watch until his form, faded away from my gaze. And I vowed in my heart, deeply and many times, by the help of God, to live and to act so as never to grieve or dishonor such a father and a mother that he had given to me. The appearance of my father when he parted has off in life risen vividly before my mind. And does so even now, as as if it had been but an hour ago. In my earlier years particularly, when exposed to many temptations, his parting form rose before me. As that of a guardian angel. In deep gratitude. Which makes me here testify that the memory of that scene, not only helped me keep me pure from the prevailing sins, but also stimulated me. In all of my work for God and my Christian duties. And it was in that moment when his wife and his son lie there in a grave that John G. Payton reflected back on the, what he had learned growing up, the life of prayer that his parents had lived, his father in particular. And he found strength to follow that example through life. I just want to encourage all of us to realize the importance of establishing a family altar for our families. Don't look back over life and say, oh, I messed up. I haven't done that. Maybe that's a fact. But there is something that you can do today. You can start today. You can gather your family together and say, you know, things haven't been the way they should be. But from today forward, we're going to do the hard work of building an altar. We're going to be careful what we worship and who we worship. And we're going to call all of our affections to be centered in Jesus, that we might experience life and power for the journey. God bless you. Be strong in him. There is strength in the life of brokenness. Let's kneel together and pray.